0: centuries, we've seen some amazing positive changes in our nation and around the world, plunging infant mortality rates, improved health, lengthening lifespans. And we've seen the, the abolishment of some of the most inhumane practices on the planet. Of course, this world remains a fallen, hostile place. But what role does God play when we see these types of positive social changes taking place? It's a question to you, Pastor John, from a listener named Jim. Pastor John, hello. When something huge and good happens in a society, like a faulty government system is fixed, or slavery is abolished, or minorities are given more equal treatment, or anything of the like, is God secretly at work in that moment, inspiring things to happen? What is God's role in positive social changes?
1: Well, first, let's be sure that we have a distinctively Christian view of the term positive social change. Whenever we're talking about uh, change among unbelievers, the term positive must always be qualified in our minds so that we don't stop thinking like Christians and simply think like unbelievers. Christians know that all so-called positive deeds done from a heart of unbelief or disregard for the glory of God— or disregard for the eternal good of people or disregard for reliance upon the mercies of God in Christ, those deeds, no matter how beneficial they are in the short run for our prosperity or health or freedom, still are acts of rebellion against God. And so not positive in the ultimate sense. So I'm assuming that when Jim asks about God's role in positive social change, he means change for the short term benefits of people like rising material standards of living and greater health and more safety and uh, more freedom to act out our our convictions, even if the short term benefits for society are not accompanied by spiritual awakening or faith in Jesus. So that's the question I'm asking. What's what's the role of God in those kinds of societal changes? That's that's what I assume he's asking. Now, I've got a general answer, but before I, I give a general answer, let me point directly to some biblical signals that will, I think, let Jim answer the question for himself, which is really what I'd I'd prefer, that we all just see it in the Bible instead of me saying it. So number one, uh, these are all signals from Scripture, pointers from the Scripture. Uh, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So the biblical picture is that the, the will of a secular king is in the hand of God. So if that king wills to treat his subjects better and make their life more prosperous, God is behind that, Proverbs 21.1 says. Number two, um, this is a specific example of Proverbs 21.1. Then God said to Abimelech, this is Genesis 20, verse 6. God said to Abimelech in the dream, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her, namely Abraham's wife, Sarah. So I take it that whenever a secular ruler is restrained in some evil he might do that would hurt his people, God is ultimately behind that restraint. So God has power to restrain Abimelech from committing uh, adultery, and, and he can restrain any king from doing anything he doesn't want them to do. Third, uh, another example of Proverbs 21 1 is when God changes the hearts of the kings of Persia so that uh, they treat the nation of Israel. Better than they ever dreamed anybody, anybody dreamed they would if after the Babylonian exile. God has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of God, to repair its ruins, etc. Ezra 9, 9. So even the pagan Babylonian and then Persian kings were moved by God to treat uh, his people in a better way than would have otherwise happened. Here's number four. And this one I love. It's just so amazing that uh, God uses his secret providence over the entire secular global governmental world in Jesus' day to bring about the birth of Jesus in the appointed place in Bethlehem. I mean, isn't it amazing that um God prophesies in Micah that um, the child, uh, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then he chooses a virgin girl who lives in Nazareth to bear his son. And how does he get her to Bethlehem? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Just think of it. God chooses a virgin in Nazareth to bear a son in Bethlehem and to get him to Bethlehem. He makes sure that she's engaged to a man whose birthright is in Bethlehem and that he He causes Caesar way off in Rome to change his policies so that in just the nick of time, there's this decree that goes out so that the prophecy is fulfilled in Bethlehem. My goodness, Mm -hmm. if you ever needed any evidence that the secular rulers are in the hand of God to bring about God's good purposes for his people, that would be it. Here's another one. Psalm 47, 9. These are, these are moving towards the general conclusion. The shields of the Lord belong to God. He is highly exalted, which I take to mean that all the military might of the world is ultimately in the hands of God. So if, if any military is ever used to protect any people and keep them from having murderous invaders, then that is also from God. And the last pointer or signal I would mention is Ephesians one, eleven. 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his will ephesians one eleven so my conclusion in answer to Jim's question what is God's role in positive social change is that his role is that he's always involved he's always ultimate, he's always ultimate and decisive, which of course means as anyone would immediately infer. That he's also ultimate and decisive over the so-called negative social changes um, as well. God rules all things either by his positive agency, or more or less directly causing things, or by permission of which is equally wise and equally purposeful since God knows what anybody's going to do, that he permits to do evil things. Here's one practical upshot of all this among a thousand others. I'm sure is that Paul teaches us in first Timothy two, one to four to pray. He says, pray for Kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way that is good and is pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And I think the implication of that is that since God is sovereign, he is able to answer the prayers of his people that rulers would be led, sometimes even in spite of themselves, led, in the use of their authority to make decisions that would open doors for the gospel and advance godliness in the world.
0: Amen. God's absolute sovereignty is incredibly practical and motivational to our behaviors and to our obedience. Thank you, Pastor John. This episode reminds me of episode 1195 in the archive, How Does God's Sovereignty Not Violate Our Decision-Making? It's episode 1195, popular episode if you have more questions about how God's sovereignty connects with human free will. Over at our online home, you can explore all 1,250 of our episodes, scan a list of our most popular ones, read full transcripts, and even send us a question of your own. Go to desiringgod.org forward slash Ask Pastor John. And to get new episodes delivered to you three times per week, subscribe to the Ask Pastor John podcast in your favorite podcast app. Well, if my ministry funding dries up, is God telling me my ministry is over? Wow, it's a good and important question from a missionary couple out on the field, and that's next time on Wednesday. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. We'll see you then.